We are turning to Romans chapter 8, and our text is found in verse 34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Before I begin, can I just thank you for your warm word of welcome. It's good to be here once again. And it is no problem coming all the way from Devizes. It's good to be here and pray that God will bless us today as we worship him and come around his words. Well, I don't know about you, but I wonder whether Romans chapter 8 is one of the most favourite portions of scripture for the child of God. And when I say that, I'm almost a little bit dubious about saying it because we, perhaps we shouldn't have favourite portions of Scripture. After all, all of God's Word is given by God and it is profitable for us. And even the things that we find difficult or the things we might find hard or the things we might find challenging, they are there for us and for our good. But I suspect that Romans chapter 8 is a favourite because we find ourselves frequently turning it to it. And so although we might be hesitant saying it's our favourite, yet we might say it is a passage we turn to very often. Now just imagine you go to a very fine fancy restaurant I'm sure you have plenty of these down in Cornwall. And you go and you have your starter, and then you have another course, I don't know what it's called. And then you have your main course, and there's something else, and then there's a dessert, and then something else after that. You can tell that I don't go to these places very often. Um, But you, you go there, and somebody says to you afterwards, well, how did you find your meal? You say it was delicious. Or be a little bit more specific. You say, well, everything about it was just fantastic. Was there anything you didn't like? Well, no, it was, it was great. Then if they pressed you a little bit further and said, well, what was your favourite part? You may say, well, the desserts, they were, they were really top-notch. And so when you, you come to it, you're, you're not denigrating the, the meal that you have had, but when pressed, you found a particular part to be very special. And I think that's a little bit like what we have here with Romans chapter 8. The whole of God's word is wonderful, but here in Romans chapter 8, there is so much that we can benefit from. Now, why do we come to Romans chapter 8? Why do Christians find such comfort and blessing and encouragement in the book of Romans? Well, if you're going through trial and difficulty, not knowing what the future is holding, not understanding what is happening to you, well, to read Romans chapter 8, you'll discover that God is in control. And so you may not understand all the whys and the wherefores, but to know that God does can be a great help and blessing. Also connected to that, we may find ourselves going through a season of buffeting by Satan, by afflictions coming upon us and we may think to ourselves that we're going to be overwhelmed and yet when you come to Romans chapter 8 we're reminded of that inseparable bond that is ours in Christ that nothing can destroy. You may know that you're a believer and you're filled with doubts and fears and lacking assurance and full of unbelief. And you come to Romans chapter 8 and you see how God keeps 
his people, how that we are safe in the hand of Christ. We may come to this and we may be tempted by what the world is offering. And then you come to Romans chapter 8 and you see what we now have in Christ. We are part of the family of God and there is a glory that is awaiting us, that we are joint heirs with Christ. You may find yourself struggling to pray and not knowing how to pray. And when you come to Romans chapter 8, you find that God has gifted his church with his spirit, who helps us in our praying, but also the Saviour, Jesus, who makes intercession on our behalf as our high priest. So there are many reasons to come to Romans chapter 8, and we're going to think about one of those, verse 34. One aspect of blessing that the believer has is that in Christ, now that they are saved, they are facing no condemnation. As a child of God, they are not facing the just consequence of their sin. Now, there are just two simple thoughts I want us to think about. Firstly, what we deserve. We deserve condemnation. And then secondly, what has happened. As you go through the Bible, from Genesis right through to Revelation, you find that there is this awful thing called sin. There is this awful sin that has occurred and it is prevalent in us and around us. We don't have to look too far in this world. We don't have to look in the mirror too long or look amongst our friends and family too long to know the existence of sin in this world. We find that God has pronounced judgment and a curse upon sin. The soul that sins, it shall die. Before sin entered the world, God gave Adam a command, and it was this, that he was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, from the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Not only does God provide the law in order to show Adam the path that he is to take, but he is also given the reminder of what happens if he breaks that command. Now, I don't know whether you've ever seen some of these electricity substations, perhaps uh, in your village or perhaps in the town, and you see the sign outside. It says, danger of death, do not enter. So you're told what not to do, don't enter, but you're also told what happens if you did enter. You could find yourself uh, being electrocuted. So God has given his law to direct and to guide us and to show us what is right and wrong. Earlier in the book of Romans, in chapter 2, we find how God not only gives his law in his words, but he also writes it upon our hearts and upon our consciences. Romans 2 verse 14, for when the Gentiles which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law. These, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according 
to my gospel. We know from a very young age what is right and what is wrong. The children don't need to have lessons in how to sin. You don't have to sit a child down and tell them right now today, we're going to teach you how to tell lies. It comes naturally. We don't have to teach a child to not take the last biscuit out of the biscuit barrel, whatever it might be. We know what is right and what is wrong. We were at a church last Sunday down in uh, Suffolk and the little children's talk and the, the man that was speaking was speaking about the conscience that we have and it's, he, he said it's a bit like a policeman. It's the policeman inside of us that tells us what is right and what is wrong and God has given his law to guide us and to lead us. And even people that don't have God's word they are not, not without excuse because we have that conscience that God has given to us. Now, it is true to say that our consciences can be seared or hardened. We can become insensitive to sin uh, through pr- prolonged and persistent sin. But nevertheless, the, ro- lo- the law of God was written there. But again, God doesn't just give us law to show us a path to take. As we mentioned earlier, he has also given us what happens when we break God's law. So, for example, in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we are told there that the wages of sin is death. That is our consequence for our sin. That is the consequence for our law-breaking Now, when we go to work or we do a job, the employer doesn't come at the end of the week and say, here is a gift for you. This is not what you deserve, but I'm going to give you a present. No, you go and get, perhaps the end of the month, you go and get what is rightfully yours. And because we are sinners, there is a rightful payment to us, and that is death. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20 tells us that the soul that sins it shall die. And so when we think about this condemnation, this is what we deserve. We deserve to be punished. There's not one person in this room that could put their hands up and say, well, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm innocent. Or I'm without sin. We can't do that because we've broken God's law. When we think about this condemnation, it is right and reasonable that we face such a consequence. God is judge, and God, as our sovereign and creator, can determine the sentence for his creatures that he has made. Now, if we make something, it's up to us how that operates and what it's to be used for. And in the same way, God is creator and he can determine what is right and what it should do. And when it doesn't work, he has a right to dispose and deal with it as he sees fit. It's also reasonable because sin is an affront to God. It is against the character and nature of God. It's a violation against him. God is said in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13 to be of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. And another feature of God's character is that he is just. Everything that God does is just and fair. 
and accordance with his law. Well, because we've broken God's law, we deserve the punishment of that law. If somebody does something wrong to us and they've broken the law, we expect the authorities to investigate and to bring those perpetrators to justice. Now, just imagine that didn't happen. You'd say, what an outrage. Uh, This crime has been committed and nobody has been held responsible. God sees all things. God knows all things. God doesn't forget. And so sin must be punished. And when we think about the presence of God, it is pure. And heaven itself, nothing sinful can enter. Revelation 21. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth. So sin brings condemnation. That's what we deserve. That is what is our right. That is what we are facing. But here in in Romans chapter 8 and verse 34, we see something else. We find that there is now no condemnation. Verse 1 tells us, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And looking at verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. How is it that we could possibly escape this condemnation? How is it that we could escape that just penalty for our sin? Well, can we hide from justice? Sometimes you will hear about criminals that go on the run, perhaps flee to some part of Europe or South America, and they, and they can't be found. Is that what happens here? Not a case, not the case at all. Can we pay our freedom? Can we pay the penalty ourselves? Can we have release by compensating God for our sin? No, we can't do that either. Can we talk our way out of it? I'm sure we've seen on the news recently how people try and talk their way out of things they've got themselves into. Can we do that ourselves? Well, not a chance. Because we're dealing with God who sees and knows everything. Something far more radical has taken place. And it's not what we have done. It's not what we have discovered. But rather what God has done and how Christ has intervened. There is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus because it is Christ who died. That is the reason we can hear those words ringing in our ears, encouraging our hearts, no condemnation because Christ has died. That is the only reason. Jesus, the Son of God, he came to this world of sin. He knew no barriers or prevention for him coming to his father. And the only reason he is here upon earth in flesh is because he came to save people from their sins. And that is what is remarkable. Jesus Christ lives amongst us, lives that law which he kept perfectly. And then he goes to the cross 
as the sin bearer. He doesn't go and suffer for his own sin, his own mistakes, but he goes and suffers for his people. He is a sin bearer. And then when he is punished and when he dies, he is dying as their substitute. And so he will be condemned so that we might live. Who is he that condemns? It's Christ that died. Peter picks this up in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24 who his own self bear our sins his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed now when we think about the event of Calvary and the sufferings and the horror and the agonies of Calvary they are horrific words can't describe the awfulness of the the pain and the torment and the torture that he went through but it goes beyond the mere physical and it goes beyond the mental or the psychological the abandonment of his people running away from him the the injustice that he was facing the sin of his people were being laid upon him the spotless lamb of God having the sin of his people laid on him And there he received that punishment. No wonder the earth was plunged into darkness. For the sin-bearer, Christ, he could not even have the warmth of light or the sun to provide any kind of comfort. And so at midday, there is this miraculous, awful midnight that occurs. And do you remember uh, the sobering words of the Saviour in relation to the unrepentant sinner? how that they will be cast out into outer darkness. And here on the cross, he experienced this awful darkness. Do you remember the time when the Lord Jesus spoke about that rich man and Lazarus? There was that rich man who lived and fed sumptuously, as the authorised version puts it, and he dies. And he lifts his eyes up into heaven And he has an unquenchable thirst. When we think about the agonies and the sorrows of hell, that unquenchable thirst is horrific. And there upon the cross, one of the cross utterances that Jesus made was to say, I thirst. Now we could explain that away and say, well, he was dehydrated. He had been whipped, he'd been abused, he had that crown of thorns placed viciously upon his head, he was bleeding, his back was cut up. Uh, There's no doubt that he would have been in shock and be thirsty. Uh, That is all true. But I think he was suffering in the place of sinners and experiencing that unquenchable thirst. Do you remember how on other occasions when Jesus spoke about hell or the eternal punishment, he would speak about the individual being cast out or removed from the presence of God? And then again on the cross, we find Jesus saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There he is suffering the punishment that we have deserved. And this is the one who by the power of his words 
brought this world into being. Look at what Paul says in Colossians, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. The one that brought this world into being, he will now commit his spirit and body into the hands of his father and he will die. And then he will make that earth-rendering cry, it is finished. The work he had come to do is completed. The reason why we may escape the just condemnation for our sin is because Jesus Christ has died. His lifeless body was laid in that borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. How can we escape this condemnation? It is Christ that died. But our text continues, and it says, Yea, rather, or furthermore, is risen again. And so as you look at the punishment being applied to the Son of God, to the Lamb of God, we could be left asking that question, well, was it enough? Was it acceptable? Did it do what it was supposed to do? Did Christ go far enough? Did he suffer enough? Did he pay enough? When he says it is finished, how do we know that that is the case? Well, there's no condemnation because Jesus Christ has died, yea, rather, is risen again. And in the opening verses of Romans, Paul describes this as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being declared with power when he rose from the dead. The Lord Jesus Christ has died, paying our penalty, and then in rising, proves that payment had been accepted. Now we read from Leviticus chapter 16, and there you have the Day of Atonement, or as the Jews call it today, Yom Kippur, and that was a day very significant in the national life of the people when the high priest would enter into the innermost place of the tabernacle. And there's lots of things happening. There are ceremonies, uh, there are sacrifices, scapegoats, symbolism, all picturing what Christ is going to do for his people, what Christ did at Calvary in atoning for the sin of his people. Now put yourself in the position of a Jewish person at the time that was in the Old Testament when the Day of Atonement took place. There you would gather and you would be witnessing the high priest washing and cleansing himself because that high priest would have to go in to the very holy of holies and meet with God. There was all these sacrifices that have to be made to make that way possible. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. And so the high priest would have to go in. And then what would happen? The people would be outside waiting. Would God be satisfied? Would their sin have been atoned for? Would God be pleased with them? And so there would be much fear and trepidation. But then the high priest would emerge and they would know that God had been appeased. And so in that emerging 
out of the Holy of Holies, they knew that propitiation, that wrath-turning sacrifice, had been accomplished. And here we have the Lord Jesus Christ. He dies, he's placed in that tomb, and then he emerges, and we know that the payment has been accepted. He died, he is alive, he's reigning, and he's interceding. And the high priest, as he would come out of the Holy of Holies, he would come out and then would engage in his normal priestly duties. And what were they? Representing the people, offering praise and worship, and pleading on behalf of those that came with their sacrifices. And the Lord Jesus Christ emerges alive, he is alive forevermore, and he is interceding on behalf of his people. What a wonderful saviour we have. What a wonderful statement can be applied to our lives that there is no condemnation. And it's because of what Christ has done for us. He has died, yea, rather, is risen again. Who are those who receive this? Those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are trusting him, those who are uh, in him and they've repented of their sin, they're believing upon him. They've come by that way of repentance and faith. They have come to the one whose arms were outstretched in mercy. As we are here this morning, we will fall into two categories. There'll be those who are condemned... They are still in their sin. Perhaps they're trying very hard themselves to get out of this situation, but nevertheless they are still condemned. Or there are those who believe on Jesus. They've put their life in him. And we find that they have repented of their sin, they're trusting him. And because of what he has done, he's died and he's rose again, they are in that happy condition of not being condemned. It is a sad thing to hear this word of good news, this word of salvation, and then to reject it. The prophet Ezekiel would say, well, why will you die? When such a wonderful salvation is available, why will you die? When Christ has given himself a ransom for sinners. You may say, well, he may not come for me. I may not be part of the the ones he's died for. He says, all that come to me, I will in no wise cast out. And so if we are in that condition of still being condemned, look and live. Jesus said, or the prophet Isaiah says, look unto me, all the ends of the earth and be saved, for I am God and there is none else. And if we are the people of God, and we have that condemnation removed because of what Christ has done for us, then we are to live victoriously. We are to live transformed transformed people. We are to live believingly what Christ has done and what Christ is going to do and what is ours and the glories of heaven. And therefore we are to live in the light of the prospect of that. Living for his glory. Given what he has done for us, Is there anything too great that we can do for him? Well, may the Lord bless his words.
we find that question comes, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. May that be true of each one of us this morning.